Awesome. Super great, guys. Thank you, and uh, welcome to Hiawatha, everyone. Good morning. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, like Spence said, if you're visiting today, welcome to our church for the first time. We are uh, preaching-wise as a church. We, we love preaching through books of the Bible, sort of A to Z, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, basically. So we are in Acts right now, which will end up being our second longest series ever in 12 years, uh, second to Matthew only. So kind of cool, uh, but it'll, it'll take us all of 2019 to get through. So we're in chapter 8 right now. If you want to turn in your Bibles or phone apps to Acts 8, and the Pew Bible numbers in that sermon insert too, if you just want to find the page number in the Bibles in front of you, you can uh, go that route as well. Um, Acts uh, basically means the acts of Jesus, or the acts, the actions of the Holy Spirit of God in the world, and this is telling us, the book is telling us the theological history of Jesus, essentially it's a book about him, like every book of the Bible, but the chronology is important, so all this is transpiring, the whole book is transpiring basically after his death and resurrection, his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later, which is to our benefit, that's the gospel, his ascension into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, he is God the Son, so be, to be seated at the right hand of his Father, God the Father, and the sending of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of redeemed sinners like us. And so that's all transpired already, and basically at the beginning of this book into the, the gospel accounts. Luke is the author of this, so he wrote the gospel of Luke as well, tells the story of a lot of that as well. It kind of overlaps a bit. But at this point in Acts, Luke is including these stories of individual Christians just like us who are preaching the gospel, healing people, confronting religious antagonists who hate Jesus and who are otherwise helping the gospel of Jesus Christ to multiply through preaching and teaching and encouragement and demonstrating the gospel as well through physical actions of love and kindness and uh, spiritual gifts like uh, services and um, helps and acts of mercy and things like that. So today we're going to meet uh, a new character in the book. We actually met him a couple weeks ago, but just by name. His name's Philip, and he was one of the seven men who were selected by the apostles back in chapter 6 to help serve the Jerusalem church when it was growing too much too quickly, and they needed more leaders to kind of help with um, feeding and leadership and um, guidance and things like that. So Philip was one of the seven. He's now going to kind of move from helping holistically serve the Jerusalem church to put on his evangelist hat, and he's going to go to Samaria and preach the gospel there. And so we'll, we'll see more of this take place next week, actually. Uh, he's going to come up next week as well, two chapters or two sections on Philip, really cool guy, and but today is kind of the first uh, time we really get to meet him. And so, remember last week, if you were here, if you weren't, Stephen, who was another one of the seven uh, chosen to serve the Jerusalem church, was senselessly murdered and killed just for being a Christian by uh, the Jews, by these, this Jerusalem council that um, asked him uh, against uh, about these charges that were being brought against him, and we talked about that, can't go back into that for time's sake today or this week. Uh, but he's just been killed simply for being a Christian. And it says the beginning of chapter 8, right before this, that a great persecution arose in Jerusalem. And so he was kind of the tipping point for these Jews who were very antagonistic towards Christianity to basically bring this type of persecution to more people other than Stephen. So he was the tipping point. And so now there's more murders of Christians taking place. There's more imprisonments of Christians taking place. There's more pursuit of Christians taking place uh, with the intent to snuff it out before it grows anymore. And so the persecution arises, and then Christians are kind of scattered. Uh, the apostles aren't, but a lot of the Christians who are in Jerusalem are scattered back to their homelands uh, around the Roman Empire or just kind of away from Jerusalem, which is kind of the epicenter of this persecution. All right, so that catches you up to speed a little bit on where we've been, and right where verse 4 picks up is kind of right on the heels of that. 
So let's start with today's Philip and Simon the Magician is kind of this other guy we're going to meet today. I'll, I'll introduce him in just a second. But let's look at the first few verses here uh, to start, verses 4 to 8. Acts 8, 4 to 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. All right, so one thing on this paragraph before we spend the rest, we're spending the, the meat of our time, the, the gist of our time today in the next larger section, but one thing I want to point out here before we move on is verse 4. Verse 4 is a really important verse in the book of Acts. And what it tells us is, is it shows us anyway, the result, and tells us too, the result of and God's intent for Stephen's death. All right, so last week Stephen died, the persecution arose, then verse 4 happens, which again says, those Christians who were scattered around the region went about preaching the gospel or preaching the word or announcing the fact that Jesus was the Son of God who came into the world to save us from our sins and rise again, and he's alive. All right, so they were scattered unto that end, or they were scattered back to their homelands or just elsewhere to bring the gospel to more people. And so verse 4 then, again, is showing us the result of Stephen's death, which was a church scattering so that more might hear the gospel and be saved. Which yet again reminds us of this key gospel principle we brought up last week, which was death and rejection precede salvation. The theme of death, the theme of rejection, the theme of persecution, always in the Bible precedes a great deliverance or a great act of salvation for people. And so if you were here last week, Stephen brought that up as a big point to his speech, is to look at ways this was typified in the Old Testament, like with Joseph and Moses, how they too were persecuted and rejected and hated, and in Joseph's case, functionally killed. And that led to salvation, that led to deliverance of Joseph's brothers, and in Moses' case, all of Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt. That led ahead then to Jesus, who's the best example of this, who died that we might be saved. His crucifixion, his rejection, his persecution led to our deliverance and salvation. But the order there is crucial. But now in this passage, we see Stephen's death does, does this as well. His death, his persecution unto his death, enabled more people to be saved because it caused the church to scatter. And where the Christians went, they brought the gospel with them. And so the order here holds up, and it actually brings, kind of infuses this dark moment with good news. It says God, again, yet again, like in Christ, he has a plan for persecution and death and rejection. All right, so today we're going to look at a place, and this is one of the places that the scattering uh, kind of went to. We're going to focus on Samaria, which was a province directly north of Judea. Uh, and remember what, what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. Back at the very beginning of the book, he says to, before he ascends to his disciples who became apostles, he says, the apostles, you will be witnesses from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the province, the greater province, to Samaria, the province north of them, and then to the ends of the earth. And, and so the way Acts is laid out is to basically fulfill Acts 1.8. Jesus' words are coming to fruition. He cannot lie. He does not lie. What he intends happens. And so the, the gospel at this point's already taken place and kind of come to Jerusalem, regions around, uh, cities and towns are in Judea, and now it's going to go to uh, Samaria, which is just cool to see that play out 
in Acts as we remember Acts 1-8 in the words of, of Christ himself. All right, so a little bit of context there and a very important verse and principle that's uh, kind of flowed from last week and, and points us back to last week, but we see it yet again, this classic gospel principle that death must come first before salvation, which points us and helps us make that beeline to the cross where it happens at the highest level. All right, so let's read the rest of this, uh, Acts 9, uh, 8 rather, 9 to 25, and we'll, uh, we'll come back to this and, and unpack it. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this, this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the words of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All right, so here we go. One quick thing on this, uh, this magic that's referred to, um, that Simon's kind of linked with here, uh, in question is just what kind of magic was it? This was not trickery as we think of it uh, today, or mostly in any case, but likely consisted of different kinds of incantations that were meant to heal people of diseases and afflictions, and because, primarily. And because it was so obviously contrasted here with the power of Jesus through Acts, it was a demonic kind of dark magic that defamed Jesus, took the spotlight off of him, and distracted people from the gospel. We'll look at a contrast here today, but it distracted people from the gospel. And so in the Bible, and we don't have time today to look in, into this, it's a cool thing to look at sometime if, you, if you'd like to or don't want to talk to me about it, I'd love to chat with you about it. But we see this pattern in the Bible a lot of times of the devil mimicking Jesus. The devil mimicking Jesus and mimicking the works of God on some level. So that's likely what's going on here. But, but the one thing he can't mimic is the resurrection. And he cannot mimic the gospel itself. And so we do see a distinct difference here with the magic on one level, but also a lot of similarities between them as well. And so if there's a lesson there, it's sometimes the worst of things look like the best of things. And it's hard, it's difficult. I mean, basically in this passage, you have two types of, of magic, really, that are, that are taking place that look a lot like each other. Philip is healing people, and Simon is. So which is the right kind of magic? Which is the, which is the good kind? Which is from God and which isn't? 
Sometimes it's kind of hard. And we're going to see today how sometimes, a lot of times, when the devil works, he speaks in half-truths. He speaks in things that, that kind of sound right, they kind of sound good, they kind of sound like Jesus. In Revelation 13, it pictures the devil, essentially, as looking like a lamb. And, and who's the lamb in the Bible? Jesus. He has horns like a lamb, it says in Revelation 13. So a, a lot of the ways that he'll look and work is he'll mimic Jesus. He'll kind of try to deviate the church away from the gospel by a way of kind of sounding Jesus-y. All right, so that'll kind of come up today, but it's also just a bit of a side point to think about this theme when you read the Bible and think about this theme when you think about just life. What things are really dark and wrong, but just have a bit of truth to them or a bit of light to them that even sound kind of Christian, and how do we distinguish the two? All right, we'll practice it a little bit today. Here's the question, though, for today I want to look at. Three things we learn about the gospel from Acts 8, 4 to 25. So three things we learn about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the good news of that that benefits sinners like us. The first is the gospel, we learn this from Simon, from the whole passage, we learn from Simon, the gospel takes away our fame, which is such good news. So it starts here with saying there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic and amazed the people of Samaria. And, and part of the key here narratively is to see this marked shift from what the people were saying about him to how they responded to Jesus after the fact. So they went from thinking Simon was somebody great, saying even, quote, this man is the power of God that is called great. Like, yikes, you know? You're almost kind of like waiting for the earth to open up or for lightning or something. Like, it's like that's, that's uh, blasphemy. That, that is, uh, talk of, that, that is the, the essence of taking away from the glory of God, right, and defaming God. But that's what they were saying of him, and he was not rebuking them for this man is the power of God that is called great. They shifted from that to worshiping Jesus, who was someone much greater instead. But it's not just the people, it's Simon's conversion too, right? Look at how he's described as, as someone who said he himself was somebody great and who was paid attention to. But then again, there's this strong contrasting word in conjunction in verse 12 where it says, when they believed Philip as he preached about the gospel, for the crowds, everything changed. And Jesus was the one who, as it says in verse 6, which is not up here, Jesus was the one who was paid attention to. And then it says, even Simon believed and was amazed. So we get kind of a glimpse of this uh, kind of almost conversion here, and we'll, we'll see that it's kind of an almost. It's not really a full conversion, though it kind of seems that, like it is. He's starting well. He's baptized even. Uh, but we see a shift here uh, towards him showing his true colors in uh, just a little bit. We'll, we'll pause on that, though. We'll come back to that. Well, what I want to park on for a second here is this first thing we learn about the gospel from the passage, and that is, it's not about us, but it's related to this idea here, and I've already, I've already said it. It takes away our fame. It confronts and takes away from our prominence and our fame and our kind of usness, the way, the way we centralize ourselves in our life. So the gospel says... Basically, and I'll borrow from the language of this passage by using the word great because that's what he said he was. He said, I'm somebody great. And other people were saying, you are, you are the greatness of God who is called great. All right, so to borrow from this passage linguistically, the gospel says to us, you are not great. You are loved, but you are not great. So even though you're in the image of God and there's glimpses of greatness that are from him, it's a, it's a common grace idea that his spirit is somehow at work and there can be glimpses of that at the core because of our sin, because we are basically the skeletons in the valley of dry bones that we just 
heard the band sing about, we are not at the core great. Only God is great. So those two things are different here. Being loved by God and being great in ourselves are very, very, very different, qualitatively different. But many blend them. Even many Christians blend these things in the way that we talk and and turn the faith. When we do that, we turn the faith into some kind of pop psychological self-help manual, which basically ends up looking like this. You are great. Jesus approves of you as you are and died for you because you were great. So Jesus died for you because you were great. And so life now consists of trying harder, realizing our dreams, being a good person, and achieving our full potential. And that is, there are many ways to say it, but that is the religion of our day, right there. And a lot of times it's syncretized with Christian ways of thinking, so it sounds kind of, sounds kind of Jesus-y. In fact, I was talking to Laura Rhinus, our intern, about this this week, and um, we found she did. Uh, this is something she threw my way because it, it contains greatness. Um, this is not something Laura believes. Um, I always have to disclaimer this because Laura has, um, your feed is full of just bad theology. I don't know how else to say this. It just is, you know, and that's good because you can, she sends this my way as a way just to say, hey, um, this is what people are being influenced by, and she's right. And I see this stuff too, of course. A lot of you guys have. This is from a, a site called Ula. You guys heard of this site before? I hadn't. Um, the name is, it's actually reaching men and women. It sounds very feminine. I'm just going to say that. Ula, but Ula la, that's what I think of. But anyway, um, anyway, it's, but it's about balance. It's about achieving balance in life, and it's a, a kind of a pseudo-Christian site, so they talk a lot about Jesus on it too. But anyway, I don't know if you guys can read this or not. I'll just read it. But it says, um, this is a prayer. When we syncretize love and the idea of our greatness, this, this is the kind of prayers we start to pray and theologies we start to uh, bring forth. Lord, help me to stop overthinking, obsessing over my failures and doubting myself. Help me to see the greatness within me. Amen. Which, um, there's a lot of things I want to say about this. Um, I'm going to rein it in. Uh, but I'll say two things. One, um, this is a really bad prayer. Uh, two, if, if you've ever prayed this before, let me um, just kind of, not in a heavy-handed way, but in an invitational way, just encourage you, never pray this ever again for the rest of your life. If it helps, hold this prayer up to the way the church prays in Acts 4 and stand in awe of the marked difference in how this celebrates the greatness of, of the prayer and how the church instead in the Bible celebrates the greatness of God and the power of God through the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Because basically this kind of prayer says, God, forgive me for forgetting how awesome I am. That's what it is, right? I'm so bad at forgetting how amazing I am. Forgive me for that sin. See how damaging that is? And how Simon-like it is? In, the, in this passage, how Acts 8-like it is? and how the gospel eventually confronts this way of thinking, uh, it is. See, the gospel doesn't bolster our greatness. Uh, John the Baptist says, in the first time he sees Jesus, the very first time he sees him kind of coming towards the Jordan to be baptized, John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must be the great one and I must not. He must get better, I must get smaller. And what happens to John the Baptist right after Jesus is baptized? Do we really ever hear from him again? Apart from his death, from his head being cut off? No. 
We don't. He immediately falls to the background for the sake of the great one. The non-great one falls back. The great one comes to the foreground. John the Baptist says it. We also see Jesus say things like, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And of course, grace itself contrasts with the idea of our greatness because we can't do enough good to be saved on our own, the Bible teaches, from every angle imaginable. We cannot do enough good. And so the idea of too much of our own personal greatness fights against that grace idea. And this is the danger. A theology of personal greatness eventually leads us away from Jesus. It may not do it today, it may not do it tomorrow, but it's a slippery slope that will eventually lead you away from him because you'll eventually entertain the notion, why in the world do I need him then if I'm that amazing and that capable? The danger of syncretizing these things is it leads us to a works-centered version of Christianity. But again, but what does it say? What does John say? What does Jesus say? What does Paul say? If you think you are something when you're nothing, you lie to yourselves and dupe yourselves and trick yourselves and deceive yourselves. You almost perform magic on yourself and, and you trick and you deceive and dupe yourself into a place of non-gospel-centered thinking and living. Jesus also says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, God is kind to the not great ones, which is really good news for those who know they're not great. But flip this around in your mind for a second. What if it said, what if the gospel was God is kind to the great ones? How terrible would that be? Right? But instead, in fact, a lot of Jesus' teachings wouldn't sync with it because Jesus spends so much time saying God is kind to enemies. God is kind not to people who deserve it, but people who don't deserve. And that's the kind of love he wants his church to kind of image amongst each other. And it's a whole other sermon. But it wouldn't fit. It would contradict, actually, Jesus' other teachings, but it also just wouldn't be good news. Unless we think we're really good, then for a moment it would puff us up in pride and make us condescend others that we think we're better than, which then isn't really a good thing anyway, right? Peter says, All flesh is like grass, but God's word, the gospel, or Jesus, lasts forever. We are like grass. Jesus is eternal. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on, but, but again, this is what the gospel says. You are not great, but you are loved, and they are different. Don't syncretize them. You are not great, but you are loved. And, and Simon is making this shift. I mean, as are the people, the people especially, but at this juncture, Simon's starting to as well. They are both, Simon and the crowds, being saved from this soul-sucking sin of self-promotion into the welcoming arms of a loving Savior who died that we might live and whose love is more important than being known, being famous, or being great. His love takes over. It's enough for Christians who understand the gospel. And we can, like Count Zinzendorf said uh, famously and kind of ironically because he's remembered for it, but he says that, that really the Christian's job is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, Take your last breath, last breath, and then just kind of completely be forgotten for the, for the rest of history. That's like, that's a pretty great vision. I know it's ironic because we're remembering him by name saying that, but it's like still, um, God in his infinite wisdom just said, well, that's something for the church to remember because it's good and it's true. And it brings us to the end of ourselves. We can actually celebrate Jesus and not us anymore. All right? 
So the first thing the gospel does is it takes away our fame. It moves Simon from saying, I am someone great, to saying, I'm not. Jesus is someone great. The second thing is the gospel can easily be exchanged for outworkings or shadows of the gospel. This one's a really important one as well, especially for today. The gospel can easily be misunderstood or mistaken for the outworkings or the shadows of that very same gospel. And so when you read this, Simon seems to be amazed more at Philip's signs and wonders than the gospel itself or the content of his preaching. You guys get a feel for that when we read read it? It seems like he's converting, but then after that, he's much more concerned about physical healing than he is about spiritual healing or the nature of what Philip was actually preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection, which were for them and for him. So later on, after it says, actually it says here that he sees the signs and the great miracles, he was amazed. Later, he asks for power to do these similar things, and so that's why we know this is true. We'll come back to that. But for today, here's the thing I want to start with. And actually, this is great. This is a huge thing if you're not a Christian yet to understand. If you are, for you as well, for me, definitely. Um, But if you're still kind of figuring out what Christianity is all about, this uh, hopefully this is really helpful and clarifying. But for all of you, don't mistake the good Christians do for what Christians believe. Don't mistake the good Christians do for what Christians believe. They are related, but they are qualitatively different many times. And the former thing can't save us or serve as the essence of the faith. It can't bear that burden, nor is it able to give us as much joy as the latter thing. Paul has this phrase, the apostle, this is another New Testament book called Colossians. In this book, he writes to the Colossian church and kind of warns them against some of these very things, but he says this, This phrase that I think is really helpful, there's language like this in the book of Hebrews as well, but it says in Colossians 2, these are shadows of the things to come. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance or the reality belongs to Christ. And he's speaking here of aspects of the Old Testament that were shadows of Jesus ahead of time, that foreshadowed him and predicted his coming and served as types or pictures or glimpses or whispers or instances physically of Christ and that way we're prophetic and looked ahead but it applies here as well what is the substance of the what's the substance of the gospel and what are the shadows of the gospel what's the substance what are the shadows what's the substance the reality of the gospel the bullseye and what are the shadows or the outer rings of the gospel or what's the headwaters and what's the rivers there's a lot of metaphors you could use here but what's the what's the headwaters What's the source, and what are the outflows, the tributaries, and the rivers of the gospel? In Simon's case, physical healings are shadows. Actually, I should say in in Acts 8's case, because Simon's not actually understanding this, but in Acts 8's case, physical healings are shadows, and the content of Philip's preaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus being a historical event that benefits sinners, is the reality. That's the substance. We could plug in anything here, anything in that blank. Uh, Christians caring for the poor and the immigrant or showing mercy or generosity to other Christians. Those are shadows of the gospel. They are not the substance of the gospel. They are outer rings of the gospel, but not the bullseye of the gospel. They are good things, but not great things. Good, worthy of our attention maybe, and and our, our effort and our involvement in, 
but they are not great, and they are not to be flipped with the substance. They are not to be confused with the substance. They are not to be placed on the same level as the substance, as the reality. Because the gospel itself is not the actions of those things, but it is rather Jesus caring for us spiritually exiled and poor sinners and healing us on the cross by dying for our spiritual sickness. That's the substance. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what saves us. And that's what offers to give us more joy than the shadows themselves. This might seem like a small thing to some of you, but it isn't. Many Christians who've gone before us, and maybe this is your story right now in this very room, have confused the two and have even left the faith entirely over this very issue. The issue again being embracing shadows over the substance. Embracing the outer rings over the bullseye. And so ask yourself, here's just a few questions to kind of help give yourself a little bit of, little bit of a litmus test here and to think through it. What captivates me more? What the church does or who the church worships? What excites you more? What gets you out of bed in the morning more? What, what elicits prayer more and thanksgiving more? Relationships within the church or the one who created the church in the first place? Jesus caring for the oppressed in his pre-cross ministry or Jesus dying for the oppressed sinner at Calvary? Physical, holistic ministry or a Christ who shed his blood on that cross for you? See, if we are shadow lovers more than gospel lovers, we are at risk of being just like Simon, a person who starts well by believing and being baptized, but then shifts and changes to focus more on what we can do for God in our greatness versus what he has done for us in his greatness. Or how we can heal people physically versus how Jesus can heal spiritually through our words. And by the way, if we cling to shadows, the only thing you can really do with that is try to be good with them and try to copy them. There's no like gospel or like good news in it. There's no event outside of you in that to kind of impart good news. And the only thing you can do when you cling to shadows, like ministering to the poor, is copy it. We know this is not the gospel. We know this. Jesus came to sort of do that for a time to set the stage for when he would truly minister to poor people like us. When he died on the cross and the rich, the rich one of heaven became poor there and imparted and lavished upon us the riches, the money of his grace. You see how the Bible talks? If we blend them, if we mix them together, we lose the beautiful contrast. We lose the story. We lose the moon of the shadows for the sun of the substance. We don't allow them to play off each other. We, we, we make the good thing great, and it, it can't serve the purpose of being the great thing. It can't bear that burden. It can't save you from your sins. But the substance can. The bullseye can. The headwaters can. The reality can. The Christ can. The one who died for you can. And the crowds are a great counterexample to Simon here because they apparently went from Simon's miracles to saying, Jesus is way better than those miraculous showings of power. I want the forgiveness of sins, the crowd was saying. I want a resurrection, the crowd was saying. 
The God that you're preaching about, Philip, intrigues me more than Simon's miracles. He excites me more. I want to know him more than just being healed of my cancer or my broken leg. I want to know about this God who came into the world to become like me, to bear my sins and die in my place. They believed, they trusted in that event of God in history. They were baptized in light of it. They converted, they became Christians, they became the church of God. They received the Holy Spirit, right? The crowds are a great counterexample. They see the moon for what it is and the sun for what it is and they don't blend them. The, the apostles use this phrase, the bond of iniquity. I read that earlier. It's not in this section, but uh, the bond of iniquity, which literally means to be shackled by sin, right? Iniquity is sin. It means to be bond, like bound up and shackled by sins or transgressions or wrongdoing, right? And so this is what the apostles, and they end up saying this to Simon. We'll come, come to this in a little bit here, but they say it to Simon. That's what the content of the gospel preaching addresses every single time, and that was the good news for the crowds. They didn't want the physical healings as much as that. And the reality is, no amount of dark magic can free you from those chains. No amount of dark magic can free you from the chains of your iniquity. That wasn't happening with Simon. It will never, ever happen. It hasn't happened in the history of the world, nor will it ever again. The only type of magic that can free you from that type of bond is the magic of the gospel. We'll come back to that. This is the third thing. The gospel can't be bought with money. Verse 18 again. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying out of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver die with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Fascinating exchange here. We learned so much about grace and about a right heart and a wrong heart before God. All right, so let's just start with this. Right when you think Simon legitimately converted, he says this. Right when you think Simon legitimately converted and became a Christian, he literally asks to buy salvation, you know? Which is like the, the antithesis of, of the gospel. It's not like it's this small like deviation of 10 degrees, you know, where the apostles end up saying, I can disciple you through that wrong take on the gospel. Like, I can teach you through that now that you're a Christian. No one expects perfect theology, so we can like disciple you through that. That's not the response, right? The response is, may your money die with you. Like, basically, I was talking to Jesse this morning about this, and he was saying, basically, I think what he's saying there is, let your money go to hell with you, perish with you. There's no place for that mindset before the throne of God, before the cross, and that, that type of mindset does not kind of enter you into the church or into the place of salvation. This idea that Simon's, like, seemingly converted, but then saying, so how much are you guys asking for the Spirit these days? Like, can I buy that? I've got a lot of pretty, I'm a pretty good person. One, I'm great. Two, I've made a lot of money through my greatness. I've done a lot. I've worked a lot. So can I, can I purchase this idea of, of grace? And that whole idea tells us what about Simon's heart? He doesn't understand grace, right? Because he thinks he's able to earn it. 
And the gospel is the opposite of earning, which explains the apostle's strong response. I already mentioned that. But Simon's actions here are not just a little bit off. They're an abomination, an offense to God, and an outright rejection of Jesus Christ. Do we pay back gift givers with money? Do we pay back people who give us gifts with money, saying, oh, let me get you back? If you do that, what does that say about your relationship to the giver? If you ever pay back someone who gives you a gift, what does that say about your relationship to the giver? It's contractual, right? It's not based on love. If it were based on love, you would never even think about paying someone back. Instead, Simon's thinking contractually. If I do this, I do this, then God has to give me this. That's precisely what he's thinking. A works-based, self-bolstering, I am great, I can approach God on my own type way of, of thinking which is the opposite of the gospel. Works, human effort, versus contrasting with the, the works of, of God. To think that we can buy grace or do enough good for it is to quote from this section here, to have neither part nor lot in Christianity and to not have a right heart before God. What makes you guys, your, your hearts right, my heart right before God is receiving grace. A wrong heart is thinking we can pay God off with our good deeds. Isn't that fascinating? Maybe it shouldn't be by now because you've seen this every single week we preach Acts. But here it is yet again, a works-grace contrast. A Simon who is a works guy mixed with the grace and the content of Philip's preaching, demonstrated by the hands of the apostles, which we'll come to, that's completely outside of them, given, not earned or purchased. Isaiah 55 says, Come who are, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you, you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isn't that better? Isn't that a better way? God's words, by the way, directly. Don't, don't you wish this was true? Well, it is. See, in Christ, in Christ it's the only place you can actually buy without money. And in fact, it's the only way to buy is if you have no money. The only way to, to buy and get in the Christian worldview is to come empty-handed. The only way. The only way not to is if when, when you bring silver, when you bring money, when you bring your good works to God, that's the only time, which you read this earlier, Spence read this uh, from, was it Mark 2, Spence? That Christ came for the sick. Christ came to call the unworthy. Christ came to call those who didn't deserve it. Christ came to call those with no money. Right? And he did not come to call the righteous. There are people in the world Jesus did not come for, and that are good people. He didn't come for good people. He came for bad people. He didn't come for self-professed good people. People like Simon, who thinks he's great. Unless we turn from that and repent, there's no way to, to receive the, the milk and honey and the wine of salvation. Here's another place we see this in the Bible, this idea of grace. I love this. The apostles who went, from, went to Samaria after Philip, just uh, Peter and John actually were sent, uh, they, like they so often do in the Bible, you've seen this a lot if you've been here for this, but if you haven't, the apostles are Christ figures in Acts. They're, they're meant to resemble him in the way that they move and kind of have their being and speak. 
It's a very intentional thing Luke is doing here, and Stephen's one of those guys last week, if you were here for that, we pointed that out. Many of the, all the characters, in a way, point him in some capacity. The apostles here, Peter and John, image Jesus in how they move towards the Samaritans. They initiate, they come down from Jerusalem, move towards them, they intercede for them in prayer, and, and they lay hands. But it, it's just a very, it actually is this simple in one way. If, you, if you're struggling with this or if you're new to Christianity, if this is true, then Peter and John came from Jerusalem, which was on top of a mountain, and it says they went down, right, because everything's down from Jerusalem. They went down to the valley of the Samaritans, laid hands, and they received the Holy Spirit. And Philip went down from Jerusalem to preach the gospel there. Jerusalem, all over the Bible, represents in a way heaven. And it's up high for a reason, to kind of get at that idea. The apostles, being Christ figures, came down and laid their hands, and they were saved. So in this capacity, did the apostles go to the Samaritans or the Samaritans climb the mountain? Which was it? The apostles came down the mountain and, and touched the sinful Samaritans. How about your story and mine? Did you ascend the mountain to God or did God come your way to you and touch you and heal you? Which is it? This tells everything about our, our, our gospel, right? There's one right answer. No one ascends the hill of the Lord. No one, the psalm says. That's Psalm 24. No one ascends the hill of the Lord. It's only Christ. And then he comes down to us in the valley of dry bones at the base of the mountain, us sinful Samaritans far from God, and he lays hands. And the laying of hands is really important too. It does two things here. One, it authenticates what's happening. So maybe you caught this in the reading, but it's kind of weird that they were converted, baptized, but there was no Holy Spirit given for a time. Did you guys notice that? There's a gap. That's not descriptive of our experience because it's not, if you're a Christian today, that's not true for you. The spirit and conversion happens instantaneously. This is a, a prescriptive, so, a, sorry, descriptive thing. I'm going to mess that up before, but this is not a, uh, a descriptive, prescriptive thing. It's a descriptive. It's a descriptive thing of, of, of a singular event where at this one juncture in history, the first time the gospel goes out into non-Jews' hearts. These are kind of like half-Jews, the Samaritans. Long story there, but kind of half-Jews. The apostles going laying on of hands basically authenticates the message, and it says, this is the same gospel, same spirit, same church, same faith, same baptism that originated with us and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it authenticates it on one level, but two, it contrasts with the theme from last week of the works of humanity's hands. If you were here for that, um, remember this. Last week, Stephen spoke on this, where he, he touched on this a few times in the Old Testament, this theme of humans working uh, for salvation or celebrating the works of their hands. One place was Exodus 32, which I, I'm not quoting here, but actually kind of am. Acts 7.41. Uh, this is right from Exodus 32, but it, it, it talks about how Israel fashioned a golden calf at Sinai, if you remember that story, but they make an idol but look at how Stephen addresses it. He says, the issue is not idol-making, per se. It's celebrating the idol as though we made it, and it's pretty awesome. That's the sin. It's not just the golden calf. It's saying, look what we did with our hands, and they make a sacrifice to it, basically saying, we are worthy to be worshipped because we are so good and able to create, and able to kind of replace God with our religious activity. 
That's the thing that God comes down and comes against and judges. And that's why idolatry is so bad, biblically, by the way. Isaiah talks a ton about this in the Bible. It's all over the place. It's not just the idol making. It's the fact that it's made with our hands. That's the sin. That's the problem. It's we make something, we stand back, we look at it, we celebrate it, and in that celebrating, we replace God. And we take the focus off of him working for us. That's what Stephen's saying here. And the indictment here is not on creativity or hard work or however we use our hands with our jobs. It's an indictment on syncretizing works and pride and religious activity and self-justification, which again celebrates us and downplays God. So that's the background in a way to what's going on here in chapter 8. In this passage, we see hands come up again. But it's the hands of the apostles being laid on sinners like us, which is really, as we said before, the hands of Christ working hard for us. We are not saved by the good works of our hands, this tells us, but by the hands of another. Just like we're, when we're baptized, we're not baptized by our, like our own hands. Someone else does the baptizing, right? It images that. Whoever baptized you guys is a picture of Jesus to you. It's saying Jesus immerses you. Jesus washes you. Jesus invites you into his death and resurrection. Jesus saves you. It's at the hands of another we're baptized, just like at the hands of another we're spiritually baptized or saved. This is why Jesus lays his hands on people a lot and heals them and lays his hands on the sick and they're, and they're cleansed. We know that he doesn't have to do this, right? Remember the instances where he says, like, from a different city, just go home, your daughter's alive, your daughter's well. He just says the word from afar. So we know he doesn't have to touch people, so why does he? Why does he use his hands to associate with healing and cleansing and deliverance and salvation? This whole thing is the answer. The answer is to demonstrate the principle of grace over and against works. It's the hands of God that save us, not the works of our hands. The same hands that were later nailed to a cross for us. John 20, I love this. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and says to Thomas, who's doubting that this really happened, he says, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, this is a, a powerful, emotive, theologically rich moment for a couple of reasons. One, you may have heard before. The other, you may have not. But one, it's not just because of this, but it is. It's emotive and powerful and rich because Thomas is touching the fact that this is the same Jesus who was crucified three days beforehand and who was raised. So it's powerful and, and rich theologically for that reason, but also because Thomas is actually touching the fact, by touching Jesus' hands, by touching his scars in his hands, Thomas is touching the fact that Jesus' hands worked for his salvation. And his hands, as a sinner like us, did nothing except to receive the work of Jesus' hands. Hands thematically are super important biblically, guys. Crucial. And it's been a huge thing here in Acts so far. People work with their hands a lot, but they're always denounced, especially when they're syncretized with salvation. When God's hands come up, through apostles or through pastors or through his people, 
or just directly by the Son of God, or when they're nailed through with a, a huge nail to a tree. That's, that's the good hand. That's the better hand. That's the hand that, that sort of owns and holds and works hard for our salvation. And that's where he saved us, when he clung to that cross and was nailed to it, and then opens up his arms to embrace us in, in love. couple quick things here. There's basically two kinds of magic in, in this story. And, you know, whether it's miraculous or mundane, I think there's two kinds of magic here, but also in the world today, just like Acts 8. There is a magic that makes us look at ourselves, and there's a magic that makes, that makes us look at Christ. There's a magic of works and a magic of grace. There's a magic of temporary healing versus a magic that actually raises the dead forever. And I, I think this passage does a couple of things. On one level, it says, just choose the right magic. There, there is a right answer here. There's, there's a, a demonic kind that defames Jesus by making us great and taking the spotlight off of him. And there's a gospel magic that puts the spotlight squarely back on Jesus when he's hanging on the cross and on the empty tomb three days later and it says, look what God did for you. Look at how much he saved you. Look at how much he came to rescue you. That puts the spotlight squarely on grace. And like I said before, there's no amount of worldly or dark or demonic or any kind of magic in the world, in the universe, that can save you from your sins. There's only one kind of magic that does that, and it's squarely in the hands of God himself. Poured out at Calvary on that mountain, Jesus died, and the benefits of which really are dispensed to us, weak people, not great people, evil people who reach out and, and grab it. And so on one level, it's choose. On another level, None of you have chosen the right magic. And I haven't either. No one has. Even those of you who are Christians, like in one sense we have, but everyone has the story of Simon. In one sense, this is kind of like a don't be like Simon passage, but in another sense, it's like we all are. We all think we're great. And, and Jesus came into the world to save people who think they're great because it's sinful. And so the better thing here is to say, not choose the right magic, but to say the right magic has chosen you. The magic of Christ who laid his hands on the cross and then clung to us with those hands in love after he rose from the dead. That is what it means to be saved. That and no other thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, for the gospel of the, in this passage. Help us, God, as a church, uh, to have a right theology and a right heart before you by being people of grace and not ourselves. In Christ we pray, amen. All right, guys, for the rest of the time today, we're going to take communion together.